to keep the flow. The podcast that looks under the hood of the creative process to keep your creative engine humming. I'm your host, Scott McLemore, a drummer and composer living way up north in Iceland. I've been involved in various creative pursuits, including working in graphic design and writing about creativity. In this podcast, I'm going to share with you what I've learned along the way. Here we go. Hey, we find ourselves today at the Historic Attics Theater in Norfolk, Virginia. My guest is a drummer and composer, an educator, and an improviser. His list of credentials is long, so I won't run through them all, other than he did his bachelor's in music at Virginia Commonwealth University and his master's in composition at NYU. He's currently on the faculty at James Madison University in Virginia and is responsible for starting Ankara State Conservatory's jazz degree program in his hometown. He's recorded two albums as a leader and countless more as a sideman. I'm really excited to have as the first guest and first interview I've ever done in my whole life, Imri Kartari. Welcome. Thank you, Scott, and I hope I don't say anything that will make you change your mind about this <laughs> well, <laughs> podcast. We can, all, well, we can edit everything. Thank so. you. That's good to know. Yeah. So thanks for agreeing to do this. My idea for the interview is I just want to talk about your creative process, but not really about the drums per se. Uh, I'd like to get deeper than that. The last time we saw each other, you were giving me a lesson. And I thought naively that it would be more of a hang, but it was fun, don't get me wrong, but uh, you were dropping so much knowledge on me that it was like my head was about to explode <laughs> by the time you left. <laughs> But we didn't really get to talk, so I just wanted to open this up by asking you to tell me a little bit about your journey. I know you came to the U.S. when you were really young, and uh, I think you were in Northern Virginia somewhere. Mm -hmm. So what was that like? What happened? Um, so, um, so I was born in Turkey. I came to Northern Virginia when I was 10. Um, so my interest in music got started um, when I was very young, when I was in Turkey. My family was really into folk dancing. Uh, my uncles were all heavily in it. I grew up with my grandparents and my uncles. And my two youngest uncles were really into folk dancing. Uh, older ones, too. Uh, they would organize folk dancing festivals. They would attend them. And the youngest uncle, Hamid, was a, uh, a folk dancer and a multi-instrumentalist. And he later really got into jazz. So I was a little kid. I was 10 years younger than him. So I was just watching him kind of navigate his way through, I guess, being an artist, being a musician. Uh, so whatever philosophy I have about music or creativity, I think he's a big uh, influence on me. All right. Uh, so then, so were you also into dance? Was that just sort of a normal I thing? I tried, but I did not have that talent. I didn't try too hard either. Like I got bored with it very quick. And to me, it seemed like, you know, I, it was a mistake. I wish I had kept up with it. Had I kept up with dancing, I think I would have been a much better drummer much earlier. Um, I would have absorbed rhythms much easier, I think. You seem like... You're really, as far as drummers go, you're really aware of your movements and stuff. I remember you talking about how different drummers move their arms, and that's it. there's a lot of similarities with dance and drumming. I think so. 
um, at one point I realized, you know, I wanted, I was ambitious musically, you know, and I would videotape myself, and especially with social media, like try to put something worthy. Yeah. And I would look at myself. Go viral. I, I didn't like. <laughs> I never had that, and I I didn't like what I saw, you know, and what I heard, like uh, compared to my heroes, you know, really great drummers. I noticed the way they move around the drums. It's uh, they had a very natural, you know, flow, and they look beautiful, you know, like. Um, if you watch Tony Williams or something, you know, and Jack, uh, the way they sit on the drums is like an art. So I thought drum set is kind of like the art of sitting down <laughs> uh, beautifully. Uh, so I began to kind of just research, explore these concepts, like uh, what was missing in the way I was sitting down, um, the way I hadn't really meshed with the drum set. Uh, as much as I wanted to. So I, I, I tried to figure out what was missing. Uh, so I explored these different ways. I realized at one point you can really dance to every jazz rhythm. You know, now I dance, just not in front of people, you know. <laughs> uh, I had danced in my car yeah, a lot. Same here. Yeah. I think you should, like, uh, you should dance uh, to all jazz music, you know, even if it's not. Uh, considered like danceable jazz music, if it's up tempo, even Cecil Taylor, even Cecil Taylor, right. especially Cecil Taylor. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I haven't done that yet. That but... would I, that I would pay to see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe we have something. There's here. a market for that. Yeah, well, I have to think about this. So yeah, I was just thinking. You know, the drummer Manu Cachet. Mm -hmm. He was a ballet dancer. Actually, oh, really? Originally, yeah. Wow, and, and I, he somehow got into drumming through like because there were I think there were drummers that played for his dance troupe or something, and mm -hmm. and they didn't show up or something, and he would fill in. I mean, it's coordinated movement. You have to have a certain degree of coordination because you're using all four limbs. You know, I mean, in dance you're using your torso and everything. Yeah, you know? and just like uh, uh, not having any kind of shame, you know, and mo movement and being. One with the pulse, I think all those things uh, dancing addresses directly. In that, I think earlier jazz drummers they had access to two different art forms when it came to rhythm. You know, one was like this rudimental jazz drumming, and the other one's tap dancing. And tap dancing was just as an influence as rudimental drumming. It's like drumming with your feet. Yeah, it's not a thing now, but apparently it was way back then. Mm -hmm. You know, and some drummers are directly influenced by tap dancing rather than rudimental drummers. You know, um, I think Roy Haynes, Papa Joe Jones—they're not rudimental drummers. They don't—you don't hear a lot of paradiddles or those ideas, but you hear more like single-stroke rolls with accent at any given time. I think I don't know. It's just a theory, but I think tap dancing may have been an influence in them. So uh, I should also bring up that we both studied with Howard Curtis. Yes. And who is a, a wonderful drummer and percussionist that now lives in Austria. And uh, I remember I used to go to see him almost religiously. I mean, like every time he was playing in this area. Yeah, me too. And, I, and I started driving around. I even went with him a few times to like help him set up his drums just so I could see him play. <laughs> 
And there is something about the movement. I felt yeah. like yeah. I was really influenced just by the way that he moved. Yeah, I didn't know what that was for a long time, but there was something about him that was so natural and the sound that he got was so earthy. You know, um, I later saw a similar thing when I saw Billy Hart. Yeah, um, yeah. The way they moved, and I think it was it had to do with this um, ancient rudimental drumming technique, um, not the modern drum corps, and those guys are amazing as well. But uh, this full-bodied, you know, your shoulders and your back involved, like that kind of presence on the drums. So, ironically, I was the last time I was in Austria, I was. Uh, I got in touch with I knew Howard was still there, and so I was trying to get see if I could meet up with him somehow. He couldn't make it, but then my first student that I ever had in Brooklyn is now a mathematician at the university in Vienna, and he came to the gig. Oh, wow. So now I have, like, my, my first teacher and my first student that's both living amazing. in Austria. <laughs> it's, like, really strange. But, uh, yeah, Small world. that's how the world works sometimes. So he also, he plays with you on one of your albums, on Origin. Mm -hmm. So, and um, I know I did a two-drummer gig with Howard a long time ago, and I just remember being scared to death. Like, it was, it was a trio with, I think, Eddie Williams and Jimmy, and, uh, and I just remember looking across... And seeing him, you know, I'm like behind the drums and I see him behind the, his drum set. I'm just like, there's something completely wrong with this. Yeah, <laughs> like I, know, I shouldn't be here. I know the feeling. I you had know, that like, feeling. It's like total imposter syndrome. But so what was that like having your teacher with you in the studio? Uh, so we had a few different experiences with that. And, and that one particular recording you were talking about, actually there was two recordings with Howard, and that's gonna come out pretty soon. Uh, this was recorded 20 years ago, but uh, it got shelled for some reason. But um, on those recordings, Howard plays timpani and percussion. One is a trio with John Darth, that's gonna come out. And the other one that's out, oh, that's been out for a while, that's with Dave Liebman, John Darth, and Howard. Right. And that came from an idea, um, Howard was, uh, Howard was really into Warren Smith, who was a timpanist, a multi-percussionist. And uh, Warren and Max Roach had that percussion ensemble in Boom. So it came from a combination of that, those recordings, as well as just um, an, another recording uh, Howard did with David Liebman. Uh, David Liebman had an, an album called Seasons. Uh, with Billy Hart, it was a trio, but then he did another album called Seasons Revisited, and I forgot the drummer on that album, but that drummer also played timpani. So I just thought there, you know, I wanted to just play with Howard, um, and the idea that he could play bass on timpani just sounded very cool. So, so that's uh, that's how the idea was born. Actually, we played for the first time. That idea came about was actually my junior recital at VCU. I did a trio with John Durth and Howard, and Howard, we played a, a Dave Holland piece called River's Run. And uh, that bass line on timpani was very cool. So, so that's how that came about. And later we did a two drummer drum set thing in Turkey as, as well as here. And, and that's scary, you know, 
Howard, playing with, together with Howard on symphony is cool. It's fun. But playing two drum set with Howard, that's pretty terrifying, you know? Yeah. I remember yeah. right before the gig, Howard was warming up, you know? And I wasn't warming up. I was just talking to people, and I saw him warming up, and I was like, oh, my God, if he has to warm up and I'm just here talking to people, you know? <laughs> At that yeah. point, like, you know, the reality kind of hit me. <laughs> but, I mean, there's never any vibe with him. There's never, it's never like... Uh... You know, no. I mean, he's just incredibly giving and nice and like the warmest person. Yes, he is. And his style of drumming also, like it's uh, the, it's great music, but also like great technique. And that doesn't come together often, you know, like Tony Williams had it. Um, but this, uh, but music allowed Tony uh, to have that kind of approach. So Howard's one of those special drummers, you know. That has it all. That has both the the precision, like the ability to be like incredibly precise and play classical music or you know snare drum music, and then also be incredibly loose and free. Yeah, yeah. That's very special. He was a great role model to have. As far as the album origin, there's no chordal instrument on it. That's unusual in itself, but then you don't have the bass either. You have timpani, and not even all the time. Like Howard's also just playing other percussion stuff. What was the sort of, I mean, you mentioned this Dave Liebman Seasons album. Was that the reason that you decided not to have any chords, or was it, was it more of a, like that's just the kind of stuff you were listening to at that time? It, it was that, and it was... um like Elvin Jones groups live at the lighthouse. Uh, years later, Billy Drummond had an album, Dubai. Uh, these albums where it's just um, horns, bass, and drums, and uh, no chordal instrument. It kind of allowed drums to come forward a little bit more, have more freedom, you know. Um, so it was a combination of those albums that gave me the idea of doing this group with Howard. I always think it's interesting how drummers write music. And uh, I'm just wondering, like, what instrument do you go to for composing? Uh, I guess piano is easiest. Um, I teach at William & Mary as well. There's a marimba there, and I accompany the students with the marimba. Uh, that's also nice. Like. Uh, well, mainly I drive so much from gig to gig. I like sing into the telephone. I sing melodies. Right. And I have like maybe like hundreds so melodies on my phone and I'm terrified that like someone's yeah. going to find them someday. <laughs> Blackmail you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do that too. And I decided that I need to sort through them maybe once a month, just go over my voice memos because, I mean, it gets to be where there's like years of stuff on there and I always forget to go back and check it unless it's something that's really special where I'm like oh I have to do this you know and then I, I do it the same day but if it's something that I just sort of like sing in there just so I won't forget it I'll just never get to get back to it if I don't have a routine for like okay now I have to go back and clean house 
maybe like one out of 50 I'll use or something. I, uh, if I don't go do that process, then I kind of forget the energy that melody was written in and it doesn't sound as good. You know, mm. it sounded good when I was like singing into the phone, but when I go back, it's like, well, what was I thinking? <laughs> you know, I thought about this, uh, thing the other day, like, uh, some sort of metaphor for ideas being like coffee beans, because if you don't, if you try to save coffee beans, they just go stale. Like you have to use them within a certain amount of time. And I felt like ideas sometimes is like you get really excited about something. And then if you wait a year and you come back, it's like, it's not, you're not the same person anymore. And the idea doesn't seem that great to you anymore. Or you, the original energy that you had for it is gone. Yeah. It's, uh, my, I think new realization is, uh, I have to finish like without too much judgment and the judgment kills me. You know, um, I try really hard to not see the, that work from the eyes of someone else, you know, um, I'm never going to know what the other person thinks, what they like, you know, or something I don't like that much. Uh, they may like it, you know, like there's a, I need to be comfortable with that part of it. Right. Yeah. I think you have to, you have to compose what you feel. You can't second guess the audience or you don't know who's going to listen to it even. Or what they're going to get. And yeah. a lot of recordings I did from the past, I was too embarrassed to listen to them. You know, there's things I've done. Uh, and if it's a sideman too, for others or improvised music, um, you know, I would be friendly. I would thank them. I'm like, yeah, that was fun. And, and it was fun, but I would have some standard in my head that that recording did not match to. So there are, there were recordings just about everything I have, like on my website, I did some recordings, like after recording them, I did not listen to them for about 10 years because I was too embarrassed and I was convinced it was no good. And then when I went back, I was like, now this is really good. I can't believe I was embarrassed about this. You know, there was a recording I did in high school uh, with this indie rock band called Real Cool Rain. Real Cool Rain. Uh huh. That's great. And after uh, going to VCU and getting all this information about music, I thought, well, that recording I've made. You know, I know more about music now. So uh, that recording I made with that band must not be any good. So I, I didn't listen to it for years. Mm. And then when I came back to it, I, um, it's one of the, the best recordings I've made. You know, there's this uh, quote I read by David Lynch last week. He said something like, um, you know, when you get older, you get more information about your art. So you feel like you know what you're doing. But what's really happening is narrowing of the imagination. and. I thought that was very true, you know. Um, so I would like to, whatever sense of mind, that mindset I had in high school with the, my friends in that indie in rock band, I'm trying to get back to that constantly, you know. The beginner's mind. I would like mind. to be there, yeah. yeah, yeah. To try to see everything through the eyes of a child or something. Right. Like. If not, I'm going to like a, do a very, um, like a jazz record, that's not going to take any chances. It's going to be 
very bland and uh, it's not going to have that bite, you know. It's not going to have any rhythmic intensity to it, you know. It's going to be very mediocre. Yeah, I think, you know, as we as we get older, the um, I think our relationship also to to what we're doing changes in a way. It's like when you're when you're young, it's an adventure. It's like everything's unknown. You know, it's like you're just sort of jumping into the deep end. Like you go record something with a band. It's like you've never made a record before. You know, and so it's kind of like, well, what the heck? You know, let's do this. This is, this is fun. You yeah, know, I remember that feeling like, wow, a microphone in front of a bass drum. How awesome <laughs> is that? <laughs> yeah, it's like little simple things like that. Yeah. It's like, wow, yeah. this is so cool. And uh, yeah, but then you get older and it's like, okay, now I know how it's supposed to go. You have certain expectations and, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, it sort of ruins the fun a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, definitely. I'm, now it's I'm, like microphone in front of the bass drum, you know. Yeah. yeah. Please don't step on the hoop or there something. There it is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering if if you feel like the fact that you're a drummer, does that change how you write music? Do you feel like that influences the way that you compose? I think so. I have a, uh, I'm not as fast on harmony as someone who would play guitar or piano uh, professionally. They have these voicings right in their fingertips. So I don't have that, you know, when I have to play a standard on a piano, I'm really slow, you know, I'm like working things out. So my approach is like just writing a melody and a bass line and then fill the notes in. So you think more linearly? I guess if that's what it's called. Or, you know, I, I like to take little bits like a, I like to listen to like Bartok or something and figure out what that is on the piano. But I don't know what it's called, you know, I don't know what that, I like the way it looks, the way it sounds, you know, the way, way it looks under the fingers or something. Uh, but uh, if, if I had uh, like a, you know, a jazz guitar training, I think um, the writing process would be much different. You know, I, it's interesting, I was just talking to somebody the other day about how Wayne Shorter wrote and he, he stopped using chord symbols and he would just write out like voicings basically and it was like these are the notes that are that work for this and whatever other notes you find that will work that's great you know but that that's all up to you guys he would just try to reduce the amount of information or change the way people think about harmony instead of like reducing it down to this formula it was just a cluster of notes that he would write underneath the melody. And then the, everything else is a passing note. So, I mean, it, it was like he didn't care what the other notes were that you used, but use those ones. Right. <laughs> for, for that origin record, that's what kind of we did. We had, um, or I would write a melody line with no flags, so the rhythm would be up to the musician to interpret. But we would have, like, clusters of notes that we would improvise from. I also heard something like Toots Steelsmans, the harmonica player. Is that how you say his name? Toots Steelmans. Steelmans. He also thinks like he plays bebop in the same way. He just he just uh, he doesn't think about scales. He just thinks about the chord tones, and then he just gets from one chord tone to the next somehow. Like he's not 
he's just you know basically playing by ear, but using the chord tones as like uh, you know guideposts or something. I wish I had that grasp on harmony. You know, I mean, I'm hearing it. You know, but uh, I don't play an instrument that well in the drum set that expresses it so easily. Like when I listen to Duke Ellington, just uh, how he uses the harmonic color in his composition, it's, it's incredible, you know, um, so. Well, it helps being married to a pianist, you know. That's, for me, it's like I, I uh, learned so much just, you know, because I would write like all the stuff in my first album and probably my second album too, was just like, you know, start with a melody and then find a bass note that I like. And then it's, you know, well, that goes here and there. And then you, so you would write the tune with the, like the top part of it and the bottom part, and then try to figure out what the middle part is, you know? Like you figure out like, well, what are, what other notes fit with that? And then what the heck is it? That's where Suna would come in and be like, oh, well, this is, you know, uh, half diminished chord here. And I mean, I had theory class too, but it's different. When you're not just trying to follow some rules, you know, you're actually trying to write something original. That singing really helps. Or, and that's the thing, actually, uh, a great teacher I had at VCU, a jazz arranging teacher, Doug Richards, he was just like, sing it, then, then play it on the piano. Like, don't play the piano, you know, don't figure out a melody on the piano. Sing it, then check the key pitch on the piano. That's that's how you should go about it. You know, um, just very simple advice, but uh, very helpful. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. If so, it would be wonderful and actually very helpful if you can take a moment to review and or rate the show over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It helps like-minded people find the show. I'm looking forward to recording more interviews and getting deeper into the creative process with more incredible guests, and your support goes a long way to making that happen. One way you can support the show while also getting early access and bonus content is by becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month. I've been doing Patreon for over a year now, and it's been great sharing my creative process with listeners. And now that I'm officially a podcaster, I'll be expanding the scope of the content there to include this show. Again, any albums, books, podcasts, or anything else I can think of will be linked in the episode notes. Using my affiliate links is another great way to support the show. And of course, I'll put a link to my Bandcamp page if you want to listen to my music and maybe buy something. Just a thought. I should also say that the data shows that amazingly people are actually listening to this, which is a bit of a shock. So thank you for giving me a chance. I really want to create a resource here that will help people navigate their creative lives. If you feel like you're getting something out of this or have an idea for an episode topic or a guest suggestion, I would love to hear it. Send me an email at scott at scottmclemore.com. And now, back to Keep the Flow. I mentioned my wife, Suna. She's Icelandic. And she gets asked all the time about the Nordic influence in her music. Do you get that a lot, being from Turkey? Do you 
do people assume you're combining Turkish music and jazz? Or? Um, they assume I, I play Turkish instruments, you know. Um, I had... So <laughs> well, shot, when like, you show up with the drum set, they're like, whoa. It's like, uh, well, you know, or I would have a conversation, you know, I really would like to, you know, someone would say, I would like to study, you know, Turkish percussion with you. And I would be like, well, I don't really play Turkish percussion. And <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't compute sometimes. And you, you know? show them the symbols, they're like, this is Turkish mm-hmm. percussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, <laughs> right. Uh, um, I, I've done some projects with... Um, uh, that crossed over, you know, let the Turkish music and jazz. And I guess I really like Turkish rhythms. They're, they're natural, you know, playing in nine, playing in seven. I like playing in that. Um, we have one piece on the album origin. That's a, that's a Turkish folk thing or. I, whenever it's a, I tried, no, I, I tried like, uh, doing Turkish folk melodies and reharmonizing them and stuff. But to me, it just sounded kind of forced, you know. Uh, I, when I did it, it, it didn't work out well. Um, there's a great Turkish percussionist who's able to fuse, fuse it well. Um, his name is Okai Timis. I would recommend his music. It's amazing. But um, it's a, that's a tricky ground, you know. Um, I really appreciate Turkish music. But I don't think I listen to it enough to, uh, well, I guess it must come through some way. I mean, when you listen to Paul Motion's music that he wrote, I hear like little glimpses, little instances of that, um, that kind of dramatic melody shape, you know, that he uses. So, and I know when he was a kid, he used, uh, that music was playing at his house in the background all the time. So it must come through somehow, but when I try to do it deliberately, the end result is not good. You know, so I, I, I try not to do it. I, I think the best approach for me is to just do what sounds good. But if I try to go out like with, with that idea in mind, like, oh, I'm gonna do Turkish music and I'm gonna mix it with something else, that the result never worked out for me. We'll give it 10 years. You go back and listen to it after 10 years, Maybe. and you'll be like, well, this is actually this is good. <laughs> actually, I am doing something. Uh, I'm doing a recording this summer, uh, a drum and fife recording, but like an avant-garde look at drum and fife recording. So the main reason is that if you were to do a straight-ahead classic drum and fife recording, we couldn't compete with the, these guys that do it professionally. They've been doing it all their lives, and they're incredible. So we're going to do a different take. So like drum and fife rhythms, the rhythms are going to be exactly the same. Um, but the melody is going to be played by um, not just fife, but like there's a piece, for example, called Turkish March that's going to be played by Zorna, a Turkish instrument. There's going to be MIDI, analog synth, monophonic synth on another one. So it's going to be like a different take on all these drum and fife yeah. albums. I, I don't know who would be interested, but... Uh, it'll be fun. Maybe if you just put like a, a pump and bass drum underneath it, you know, so uh, the kids can dance to it, you know? Maybe. Well, <laughs> uh, we were thinking of doing a Crazy Army, that one snare solo, but with a Barry sax, where I'm going to write a bass line that goes to it on, on Barry, try to make it a little funky, you know. So we'll see how that turns out. So as far as improvising goes, um, 
I'm just wondering, do you practice improvising? And if you do, like, how do you go about that? Do you practice over tunes? Do you practice playing free? This is something I think about all the time. Um, I, uh, if I don't know the song, if I don't know the form of the song, then I trip up over myself. And um, so I try not to, to play on anything that I don't know, you know. But, um, and lately, just in the last few years, I've gotten over this hump about this. So what I'm doing is um, I practice a lot of technique. I can't really practice improvising. So, but what, what's been helping me is, um, you know, that book, Stick Control. It's just a bunch of patterns, you know, that has, um, without any form or, or meaning, you know, just a purely physical uh, muscle exercises, you know. Um, what helps me is practicing that on a regular basis and just listening to the music and not practicing improvising. Because uh, if I practice improvising, you know, I'll play and have fun, but then I'll just recreate something that worked out before and it's not gonna be as good as the original. So what really helps me is uh, keeping my hands in good shape and listening to music. That gives me the, the most fresh approach to playing. Like when you're on a gig and, uh, and it's, you have a, a solo, how do you get into a flow? Do you feel like you, you just automatically come out with some, something interesting? Or is there a process for you to get into the right state of mind to be able to just play? Is it like, a, like an open form solo, maybe? Or playing within a form with the rest of the band? Well, say if you're like playing a standard and they, get, they drop out and they let you play over the tune. Okay, let's say I have a form. It's gonna sound silly, but uh, I try to put a feeling on the first two, three notes and the rest of it comes, you know? And I try to like, I uh, really mean it, you know, the first two, three notes, whatever it is. And the rest of the ideas just kind of flow through. And what do you mean by a feeling? Well, I know where the pulse is and um, whatever notes I play, I know exact meaning of where it lies on the pulse. If it's gonna be right on the pulse, it's right on the pulse. If it's like a little bit after, if it's a syncopated note, it's a syncopated note, you know. I make sure in time, I know where the, those notes are. And with my hands, I know exact sound I want from the drum. So um, exact dynamic and where I wanna hit in the drum. Like, I just wanna be um, very deliberate on those choices from the get-go. And that intention brings on the rest of the notes. If I don't have that deliberateness in, in those uh, first three, four notes, then the rest of the solo kind of fumbles and I revert back to like this um, automatic rudimental stuff that I had been practicing. But you can see in my face and feeling in my heart that even though I'm doing something that's, uh, it's gonna work out, you know, and band is gonna come back in hopefully in the right moment. It's not something I'm, I'm very proud of, you know. It's an, I'm, at that point I'm on automatic pilot. 
it's like going through the motions. Yeah. But the but when you start with these notes, you said like two or three notes. Uh huh. That's almost like a punctuation. It's like you're putting your, you know, you're planting your flag or something like, we're doing this. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's just like this conviction. And, and I can continue every, on that phrase. Uh, um, I can continue on with that attitude, that energy, or I can play a short one and another short one. Um, uh, but even if it's, and by deliberate, playing deliberately, I don't mean necessarily loud. It can be a soft idea too, but um, rhythmically, not wishy-washy at all. It's either right on the beat or it's not right on the beat, but it's a, it's a, um, it's a deliberate choice. So when you're making the choice, I mean, the options are limitless, though. Do you feel like when the moment comes, do you find it just easy to say, okay, this drum, that cymbal, or, or is it like, I mean, sometimes people get overwhelmed with choices, you know, like when people sit down at the Cheesecake Factory and get out the menu, and it's a book, you know, it's a tome, and they're like, I have no idea what I want to get. You know, there's so many choices, so many things that they might be good. But, I mean, on the drums, there's so many different options, especially, I mean, depending on the size of the drum set. Right. We're lucky in that I think both you and I play like a four-piece mm-hmm. kit, a couple of cymbals, maybe three cymbals yeah. or something. But within that, there's so many. It's like, are you going to play on the bell of the cymbal? Are you going to do a rim shot? Are you going to play, put down the sticks and play with your hands? Or how do you narrow it down? That's a good question. I think I start out with something simple and I do my best not to question it. Um, and because when I do question it, it's like uh, I fall over myself, you know. Um, my main concern is uh, not to question the idea. Uh, if I can just play it without questioning myself, it's going to be okay, you know. Um, is There are no wrong choices except... Uh, you know, you can recover from anything. You know, you can start with a crash symbol, um, which is which would be unusual, but you can make that very musical. You know, um, so there are some tricks, I guess. Uh, I could, uh, you know, I'm listening to the soloist before me, so I could use like a rhythmic idea that they used, as um, abstract as it may be, and continue on. Um, but the main thing is uh, getting getting out of my head, you know. Um, there's this um, thing I've been reading recently, so I'm always uh, I'm always working on it, you know. I've I have not come to a place where I figured this out. Like I'm always working on this very questions you were asking me. Uh, I I wish I had like a book and like present it to you and stuff, but it's not like that. I'm. Tonight, like, for example, you know, I hope I don't mess up, you know, <laughs> there's, there's going to be a solo tonight. And um, I hope that it's a good one. I, I don't know. But one thing, one of the things I'm working on is um, meditating. So this is new for me, you know, this is um, just to kind of relax and not question myself too much. And uh, one meditating technique that I've just, just this week I've been reading about that I'm very fast curious and one of my students forwarded me this uh, CIA.gov This is paper. a meditation from the CIA. Well, they were trying to figure out how to use it for the Army. 
And uh, there was these uh, tapes that came out in the 70s called te uh, Hemisync uh, or the Gateway Experience. And what it is is it's, uh, uh, they made these recordings uh, with slightly different tones and beats for their stereo recordings. Um, and when you listen to them with headphones, they claim that both sides of your brain function at the same time, which in normal cases, it rarely does. It's usually like one side of the brain, the intuitive side, does the creative thinking, and the other logical side does the survival check. And analytical. You know, analytical yeah. mind either stops it from letting or lets the other side take over and follow through with the idea. So the, essentially their claim is that your brain functions best when it's both hemispheres working together at the same time. So supposedly there, this te uh, meditation technique uh, allows you to do that. So let's see, I, I, I did that last night. Let's see if it helps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what you, would you just put headphones on and you listen to this thing and just try to zone out? Is that um, the basic? Just try to, you know, relax all your, all your muscles, you know. That's one concept for meditating. The other one is like TM meditation. Transcendental yes. meditation, yeah. Which is, uh, um, you know, they give you a mantra and you repeat the mantra. And it's the concept of focusing, you know, your mind will wander off, but you have to get back on the mantra again. Um, so uh, it's basically... Uh, a practice of focus, which is what we do when we play music, you know. If you're listening to the energy of the song, music, whatever you improvise will be within the spirit. It's only those times when you start thinking too much, then you get out from the spirit of what that song was about, and then you start to do like a, a Maxwell transcription out of nowhere. That doesn't make any <laughs> sense, you know, it doesn't line up with the music. So I think it's, it's a matter of focus, really, staying with the energy of the music. That will give you the ideas, I think. Yeah, I mean the it, the mind is can be a wonderful thing and it can be a horrible thing too. It's like yeah. it can destroy the creativity. You know, as soon as you start to doubt yourself, or I think if you keep listening, that's the thing, really. Like um, if you use any other organ besides your ear, I think you're in trouble. I think the music itself has all the ideas. You know. You just kind of allow your hands to relax and just play with it. Any other thought process, I think, will you'll run into trouble. You know, I know it may not be <laughs> a direct answer, but um, <laughs> that's a good one. But uh, yeah, uh, keep your ear on the music. Like I do this a lot. Like I go, if I practice too much rudiments, like I, it happened to me, it still happens to me. I go into the uh, gig with super warmed up hands, like, it's like, oh, you know, my soles are gonna be great, my hands are like mm, yeah. superhuman now. I know that thought. And, uh, and it never works out. I either play too loud, I play too free, I don't, I separate myself from music. Because what's happening there, that my brain is in my hands. I'm thinking about how the sticks are feeling in my hands. And I'm not listening at all, I'm not using my ears. It's like a, wrong focus you know wrong I, I focused on the wrong part of my body you know it's like the, the listening will give me the answers so i'm gonna tonight when i go to the gig i'm gonna go with this listening. yeah 
Yeah. And you're playing with uh, Janice Siegel tonight mm -hmm. from Manhattan Transfer. Yeah. Is this your first time with her? Or is... It's my second time. Second time. Yeah. Okay. She's an incredible singer. Yeah. And her music that she sent is just uh, just charts, you know, no detailed arrangements, nothing like that. So it's just uh, confidence and, you know, good musicianship uh, and knowing the tradition, I think, you know. That's great. Yeah. Just letting it happen. Yeah. Are there artists or other creators in other fields that you draw on for inspiration? For instance, I don't know if you know Hannah Gatsby. She's an Australian comedian. Oh, I'm not familiar with her. She, yeah, she has a great uh, Netflix special, a couple of them actually. But she, uh, one of her specials that she did, I heard in an interview with her that she had structured it based on a Bach fugue. And I just wondered if you ever feel like you ever reach across to other art forms, like if you're inspired by painters or anything like that. Movies. Movies. I really like uh, great movies, you know. Even like, uh, that's how I got into jazz, really. My favorite music when I was a kid was um, the theme music or movie music, you know, or Lalo Schifrin. Uh, he's a, a movie composer. He did the soundtrack for Dirty Harry. Steve McQueen's uh, Bullet, you know. Um, and for a long time, I didn't know what the word jazz was. I, I called jazz detective music because it reminded <laughs> me of the music that I saw yeah. from these movies. But um, uh, I, I love the way um, great directors pace their movies. So I like to draw inspiration from that. That's great. I mean, I talk about that with my students a lot, the, <clears throat> the element of drama like the, yeah. you know, building up expectations and the element yeah. of surprise like and Hitchcock all this stuff. movies. He's yeah. a master of like, a, you know, you don't want to play everything you know in the first measure, you know, then where do you go from there, you know? Simple, like easy does it. But those are things that are common in every art form. When you get into like, well, it's storytelling. And when you're playing instrumental music with no lyrics, it's kind of hard to think about like what story are you telling, but there is some element of it. Some kind of tension and resolve. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering if, uh, if you're creative in any other ways, like do you draw or something like that? I used to. Yeah, I want to do the, these things all the time. You know, like uh, if it was up to me, I would just like uh, play music, draw, write, screenplays direct films like uh, I, I would do if uh, I would do everything I would do all of it you know um, it's just the uh, life you know you only have a certain amount of time so I, I pick one thing but um, I would love to go back to school and uh, you know study film uh, I would love to write screenplays it's um, um, but I'm a uh, researching rudimental drumming and and, <laughs> and focusing on jazz drumming. Well, maybe a, a movie about uh, fife and drum. I don't know, the fife and drum scene or something like that. But possible. You yeah. Know. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. The history is, is amazing. When you get, go deep into it, uh, their history is just as involved as jazz history. They have their heroes, you know, um, their influences. Uh, 
it, it's a whole big world there. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm really into uh, analog synthesizers. Yeah. Um, there's something about the sound that's very beautiful, very expressive. Um, a lot of jazz musicians explored it, you know, in the 80s, but, you know, Brecker and John Abercrombie and stuff. But um, I would like to really explore that, you know. There's an album by John Sermon. Do you know who that is? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's uh -huh. like, I think it's his first Amazing DCM. Adventures of Simon and Simon. This one I'm thinking of is just him, and it's just oh. like he's overdubbing himself on all these different instruments, mostly wind instruments, but then he's also using synthesizers. Okay, I would like and to it, hear that. That's really nice, actually. Yeah. The similar thing with Jack, that's amazing. I have to yeah. listen to that. I have to check yeah. that out. So you have kids? Uh, just one. Just one. Uh, okay. Forty days old. Uh, <laughs> it's a new son, daughter. Son. Okay. And is is he creative also? Are you? Yeah, he's creating a lot of poop and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and puke. No, he's not into the, not into the crayons yet. <laughs> not yet. Oh, you you'll get him there. Has he figured out how to hold sticks? Are you gonna like go with traditional grip or match grip with him? Or? Traditional, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> As an educator, how do you feel about the way creativity is taught or the way music is taught or encouraged in schools in the U.S. versus in Turkey? And what would you change if you could? That's such a big question. That is. That's a subject uh, for a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, I would say, though, um, uh, it, maybe in arts, it's a little bit like uh, in fine arts. It's a little bit different than in, in music. Um, but in uh, music study, there's so much teaching on like the technique of it. Uh, there's not much room for, you know, for students to be themselves or to be comfortable. I mean, this is a big question and I'm just, uh, it's something I think about all the time. Like, I don't like grading, for example. I don't think grading is a good idea at all. I don't know if we figured this out yet, to how to really teach art in schools. I don't think this is something we figured out. Um, and it's something that, uh, you know, I would like all my students to be completely free, you know, completely confident. These barriers between teacher and student, that's kind of weird also. In Turkey, there was more of a hierarchy. And I, I don't think it's good. Um, so. This is something I'm working on currently. I'll get back to you when I when it's more concrete. But there needs to be. It has to be an environment where, uh, when the student comes out from the department, there should be zero fear from their side. All right. So I said we weren't going to get into the drums, but we have. And uh, one thing I remember vividly from the lesson you gave me was how you work on the Charlie Wilcoxon book, All American Drummer which is a collection of snare drum solos, you played them along with the blues or with James Brown tunes, depending on the time signature. And there's a video on, on YouTube of you playing it with Otis Redding, I think. Uh -huh. And that seems like an incredibly creative way to practice something that a young student might find a little dry. Where did you get the idea to do that? Well, I, when I heard drum and fife music, uh, what struck me was it was super funky. 
It was like funk music, you know? And, uh, I th and I think that's how they were able to convince these people to go to the war. You know, it was a good time or something, like party time. There was nothing academic at all. And for years, I approached Wilcoxon, which is essentially drum and fife vocabulary. I approached it like very academically. I didn't get it until I started playing it along to this music. Then it became something funky. So it's really all it, that is. It's like Wilcoxon is funk music, you know? So that's how it should be approached. Those accents should be funky, you know? If not, if it's an academic kind of study, then first it's no fun, you know? And it's not going to help you. And they found out quickly that it was not a fun party time. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's poor guys. So there have been a lot of advances in technology recently with AI. How do you feel about that with regards to creativity in music? Is it potentially just another tool? Do you see it as a threat in any way? And if so, what do you see as a remedy for it? What can we do about it? Yeah, I haven't been able to really uh, figure that out. I, I, I read this Noam Chomsky quote the other day. He said something like, it's like the biggest plagiarism software, actually. He did not think any good was going to come out of it at all. And uh, I read another thing, just uh, there was been a development where it can actually make movies. There's a version of it that, you know, creates 60 second movies with any scenario you type it for it to do. It's so powerful, but, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I remember watching Cool Hand Luke and like crying and stuff. And these movies, you know, Cinema Paradiso, Kramer versus Kramer, like these incredible movies, like they're very human. And AI is not, doesn't have that touch, you know? Uh, is it going to give me that feeling? Is it going to be, I have yet to see anything AI has done that has uh, the humanity of Keith Jarrett or Richard Correa, all these musicians that we're listening to. So um, right now, I hope it'll be used in a positive way, but I, I like the human approach still. You know, I, I miss the days without any internet. You know, when I was, I remember in eighth grade reading Clockwork Orange and listening to Rush moving pictures. It's the best time I've ever had as a kid, you know. Um, so I would like to have, I would like my son to have a similar similar experience like that, you know. So I'm, I'm into analog. I'm, I'm old school. <laughs> I'm very much old school. Me too. I just got a record player for Christmas. So oh I'm yeah? Like getting, becoming more and more analog uh -huh. as time goes on. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, have a great gig yeah. tonight. Thank Thanks you for so talking much. to me. Thanks for having me. My yeah. pleasure. Before I sign off, I just want to say how much I enjoyed this. I had never interviewed anyone before, 
and I'm sure I'll get better at it as we go here, but I feel like I learned a lot. Imri is such an interesting and thoughtful person, and really talented. You should definitely check out his music. I put links in the episode notes to his albums and his website. Thanks again to Imri for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks also to the Virginia Arts Festival and to the Attics Theater for making it possible. And thanks to you for listening. This was an incredible experience for me, and I hope you also got a lot out of it. I'll catch you in the next episode. Until then, keep the flow.